0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. In the week after uh, King's assassination in 1968 alone, uh, there were riots in 125 American cities. Um, More than 21,000 people uh, were arrested in that seven-day period um, alone. The 500,000 number of African Americans who participated in some way or another in the rebellions of the 1960s was an equal number to uh, the number of American soldiers serving in Vietnam. Uh, so this wasn't an isolated incident. This wasn't a few people peripherally on the margins uh, participating uh, uh, in uh, this uh, urban Rebellious activity. This was a mass uh, uh, expression of a mass uh, uh, discontent uh, within um, African American communities uh, with the system. Um, And in addition to that, This was no mindless rioting. In the aftermath of the Watts Rebellion in 1965, a study conducted found that more than 58% of respondents um, of people who have participated in Watts said they thought the effect of the riot would be favorable. 54% of those arrested thought the riot would, quote, help the Negro cause. 51% thought the riots would make whites more sympathetic to the problems of blacks. And more than 80% thought it would make white uh, America more aware of the problems facing uh, um, the African-American community. Now, there were two factors that fueled the turn uh, to black power. The first was the civil rights movement itself. Um, blacks in the North did not need a civil rights movement to know that racism existed um, in the in the North. So the... the 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 idea that the Black Power Movement was only in reaction or relationship uh, to the Southern Civil Rights Movement, I think, is a wrong one. Um, Instead, the Civil Rights Movement both raised the expectation of Northern blacks by showing that you could fight racism and racism and actually win and have success and and force the government to enact um, uh, legislative changes And it also enraged African-Americans in the North. During the Watts Rebellion, for example, it was reported that there were audible shouts of Selma that could be heard through the streets um, during that that riot. Selma... Uh, in 1965, um, civil rights marchers uh, in Selma, Alabama, attempted to cross uh, a bridge through the capital of Alabama and were violently repelled by uh, uh, state troopers. Um, it was in that march that um, now... Uh, black congressman uh, John Lewis from Georgia, who was recently uh, referred to as a nigger by uh, Tea Party uh, uh, racist at a protest in uh, in Washington, D.C. around the uh, Obama health care bill. This was the protest where John Lewis was almost beaten to death um, by uh, uh, Alabama state troopers. Um, And so There was a connection for people in uh, Watts to what was happening um, in the South, which prompted the chance um, of Selma during that rebellion. Um, The spectacle, more generally speaking, um, the spectacle of men, women, and children wantonly beaten by police, while no official entity attempted to intervene, was enraging to millions of African Americans in the North. Uh, while white officials and liberals, white liberals, offered up all the reasons why blacks should show more uh, uh, patience and expect less and to generally slow uh, the movement down. The other factor in the development of black power consciousness were the conditions that existed in the North itself. The great migration of African Americans from South to North during both the First World War and then the Second World War transformed American society um, and specifically American cities. Between 1910 and 1970, the African American population went from being mostly rural um, and uh, living in the rural South to the majority of African-Americans living in cities in the North and West. And with this movement came the hope that conditions um, and life in general general would be made better. And while definitely relieved from the humiliation of legal racism um, in the South, public and private uh, uh, expressions of of racism um, in the North was just as stifling to African-Americans. While it was not the law, as it was in the South, necessarily. It was the practice in the North to keep blacks in the most menial of jobs. It was the practice uh, uh, in the North to keep blacks in the worst housing, in the worst neighborhoods. It was the practice to keep blacks in the worst schools, so on and so forth. And this would constitute what Stokely Carmichael would coin in his um, 1967 book, Black Power. Uh, this is what he would refer to as institutional uh, racism. So not the overt racism of the Jim Crow South, uh, but the racism in practice uh, uh, um, um, in the uh, in the North that kept. Um, African-Americans uh, uh, segregated um, in virtual second-class uh, uh, status. Now, there were many northern-based organizations like uh, in, in cities like Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, that were engaged in different campaigns to fight racism and discrimination in the 1930s and the 1940s all to say that the the fight against conditions in the North didn't all of a sudden just appear in the uh, mid-1960s, but that these were fights that um, began as early as the 1930s, um, many of which were um, organized either by the Communist Party or people who had uh, gotten some level of uh, political training um, through the many different... um, front organizations of the Communist uh, uh, Party. In New York City, for example, in the 1940s, there were spirited campaigns against police brutality um, for housing rights and even for affirmative action, the idea that there should be special, particular programs uh, uh, created um, for blacks in particular to overcome and deal with the very uh, real, um, the reality of job discrimination. Um, <laughs> there were full-scale riots in New York City in both 1935 and 1943, um, as well as in Detroit in in response to racism and police brutality. These were the conditions that black militant Malcolm X radicalized in when he was coming of age in uh, Detroit. This is why by the time the 1960s came along, Malcolm X was so much further to the left um, than others in the movement because he understood fully that racism was not just a regional affliction in the U.S., but as he used to say, quote, if you are living beneath the Canadian border, you are living in the South. Basically to say that racism was an American phenomenon. It wasn't just a problem uh, uh, in the South. Um, And yet the northern campaigns against racism that predated the civil rights movement and involved thousands locally... uh, um, uh, we're not yet able to develop a serious national campaign against racism um, across, you know, national, across the country uh, because of the cloak of McCarthyism. McCarthyism essentially criminalized left wing and radical sympathies and organization and consequently. Uh, Socialists and communists were weeded out of everyday life, uh, from trade unions uh, to uh, neighborhood libraries to every manifestation of, of, of social gathering, social protest. Uh, the left was systematically uh, uh, weeded out. Um, you know, for for example, across the South, the NAACP became a legally banned um, organization as late as the 1950s. The sum of all this. Uh, Was that any radical continuity linking the struggles of the 1930s against uh, police brutality, racism, housing discrimination, et cetera, uh, were completely, if if not completely, for the most part, uh, cut off to black activists uh, when the movement, uh, when the black movement in the South began to take off in the mid 1950s. Historian Manning Marable says that McCarthyism delayed the civil rights movement by more than a decade because of this. All to say that uh, the, uh, all of this is to say what the conditions in the North were uh, um, to describe what the conditions in the North were, but why it took the civil rights movement in the South uh, to open up uh, a way for a fight against racism um, uh, uh, in the North. There was a general radicalization happening in the 1960s. Um, As well, Uh, the radicalization was fueled by the gap between official American rhetoric, uh, from being champions of democracy to promulgating a notion of an American dream, and the obvious reality that for many people in this country, neither democracy or the American dream were achievable. From the Vietnam War to each instance of white opposition uh, to the civil rights movement, this radicalization. Uh, uh, was fueled. In the north, um, the radicalization uh, again was also fueled by the growing expectations that were raised in the uh, uh, south. Um, but not exclusively connected to the South, um, because it's not to say uh, uh, as if blacks in the North were only reacting to what was happening in the South. They were not. They were primarily reacting to Northern racism and segregation. Uh, but what was happening in the South created the urgency um, uh, to act. So in Michael Honey's book, uh, Going Down Jericho Road, which is about uh, the Memphis um, uh, sanitation workers strike in 1968. He interviews the workers and asked, you know, why. Why then? You know the the conditions confronting uh, black sanitation workers had been happening uh, uh, for decades. In fact, it was probably much worse ten years earlier. So why 1968? Um, And one of the workers said there was an urgency. We we didn't know why or if we would be successful, but we knew that we had to act. And it's not surprising, you know, in 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 1968 that this urgency uh, would be felt several months after you know the. Detroit, 1967 uh, rebellion, which to that point was the most um, was the most violent uh, domestic uh, uh, riot uprising in American um, history uh, to that point, um, but. Uh, So so there's a a connection to what is happening um, in the South, but there's also a reaction to what is happening in the North. So, for example, in 1965, five days after LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act, which unequivocally gave African-Americans in the South the right to vote, the Watch Rebellion happened five days later. Um, Now... Some have said that this signified the almost formal shift of civil rights activists, activism from the South to the North, that this was the, the sort of formal um, uh, uh, happening of, 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 black, uh, of, of black power. But that would really be to reduce the rebellion um, in Watts to um, being connected to issues that were happening in other parts of the country, not what was happening in Watts or not what was happening in, in California. California. Um, so in reality, Watts was a long time coming in California and probably had more to do with the enshrinement of an openly racist housing proposition that was successfully implemented um, in 1964. In 1963 the California State Legislature had passed a fair housing law prohibiting racial discrimination in any public and private housing in the state. And in response to this, the California Real Estate Association created a ballot initiative Proposition 14 that would overturn, er, that would overturned the fair housing bill and declared that in private property owners had a right to discriminate. The proposition won with 65% of the vote. That ensured that African Americans would remain in segregated and inferior housing, all the while paying more for that housing. The the Urban League did a study in the mid-1960s that uh, was incorporated into the Kerner Commission that showed that black people on average paid uh, uh, 10% more for inferior housing um, than whites. Um, So it was also... So that... We can assume is is one of the things that people in Watts were responding to, not necessarily just what was happening um, in the South, but this open sort of endorsement of racism um, in California uh, 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 in California itself. Now, the period, this period, in terms of how things uh, sort of radicalize and develop from uh, civil rights to Black Power, um, you know, really underlines the extent to which small changes that uh, small demands for change uh, that are are dashed can lead to the development of revolutionary expectations and demands for revolutionary uh, change. Um, The civil rights movement itself began with the relatively modest demands in the um, the Montgomery bus boycott. The, The... Uh, initial demands um, in Montgomery uh, were not the um, end of Jim Crow, not the end of segregation. The initial demand uh, was that in the Jim Crow bus, if the white part gets full, please don't make us give up our seats in the black part as well. Keep it, you know, if you're going to have the bus segregated, then keep it segregated. Don't come into our part uh, of, the, of the bus. So very modest uh, demands. Diane Nash, who went on to become one of the radicals of the uh, civil rights movement in the 1950s, uh, described her involvement in the struggle as the, the hope that one day a Negro would be able to build and atom bomb, uh, uh, just like uh, whites have. Um, So this was, you know, these were some of the the, the modest uh, conservative demands that the movement um, began with, but during the process, with the U.S. government stalling and doing as little as possible every day while black people are being brutalized and killed and the government continuing to say what it cannot do, um, really pushed people uh, uh, to, you know, much starker uh, uh, alternatives in the, in the civil rights movement um, itself. So that in 1966, um, Stokely Carmichael famously you know, is released from jail and says that this is the 27th time I've been arrested. I'm not going to jail anymore. We've been saying freedom for six years, and we, uh, we ain't got nothing. What we're going to start saying now is black power. Um, and so black power instantly. And it's to say the, the pre-story of what I've talked about is to show that you know this isn't the first time the idea of black power, black resistance came up is when he uttered these words, Um, but when he said this in 1966 where things had already started to move in the north uh, in Watts in 1965 the civil rights movement um, had sort of reached its legislative uh, fruition with the 1964 Civil Rights Act which banned uh, Jim Crow segregation and the 1965 Voting Rights Act which uh, finally gave African Americans uh, uh, the, the unobstructed right to vote um, in the South, by 1966, there was still a push to force uh, implementation of these measures to make sure that the government actually sent people to the South to make sure that black people were being um, allowed uh, to move. And all of the obstacles that uh, uh, African Americans continued to endure and the reality that after this legislation had been passed, racism continued uh, 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 to exist. Racism continued to express itself meant that the phrase black power is uttered by uh, Stokely Carmichael in this instant uh, instantly captured the mood of millions of black people who were fed up with the glacial pace of change. Um, the phrase became controversial because it intimated impatient with, impatience with the politics of nonviolence as advocated by Martin Luther King and, and actively looked up, uh, looked to pick up the mantle of what Malcolm X uh, described as by any means necessary in terms of the struggle to fight um, against uh, racism. It looked to pick up the mantle and give some sort of expression uh, 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 to that. And so as activists tried to capture politically what this turn to black power meant, many questions came up as to how to further the struggle against racism and how to um, engage in a struggle for black liberation. Um, uh, The contradictions that many came up against in defining the political agenda for black power um, made black power less of a politically cohesive movement and more like a mood encompassing millions um, of blacks. In that sense, black power is very elusive and and means different things uh, to different people um, (laughs) uh, 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 during this time. It became, you know, a a sort of expression, you know, not just for self-described revolutionaries, but for black nationalists, for black Marxists, for black businessmen, black conservatives, and, you know, yes, even uh, Richard Nixon, who uh, uh, talked about the expansion of of, or creation of um, black uh, capitalism and expansion of black capitalism in black inner cities, um, as also an expression of uh, black power. Um, In terms of Uh, the sort of um, politically the two high points of the era um, of of this black power era uh, that really captured the organizational expression um, of Okay, of black power uh, were the Black Panther Party and the Dodge Revolutionary uh, Union Movement. Um, The Black Panther Party formed in Northern California in 1967, initially as an armed self-defense organization that looked to challenge police harassment um, and uh, police brutality, uh, but quickly morphed into a radical uh, political organization that captured the imagination and support of African Americans across the country very quickly and that really tried to build um, a revolutionary organization whose aim was the overthrow of capitalism um, in this country. In 1969, the group's newspaper, The Black Panther, had a circulation of 100,000 copies per issue. Um, In that same year, 40% of blacks under the age of 25 supported the aims of the Black Panther Party, including the overthrow of the United States government, um, which is why they quickly became enemy number one. One uh, for the, 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 the US uh, government. The uh, Black Panthers were uniquely different from any other formation in the 1960s for two reasons, really. One, because of its mass appeal, the organization was enormous with thousands of members and tens of thousands of supporters beyond that. J. Edgar Hoover, um, the uh, corrupt uh, uh, head of the uh, FBI in the United States, declared the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. Uh, One of the other reasons for its appeal uh, was because the group actively sought to express solidarity with all sorts of existing uh, uh, struggles, from the Viet Cong in Vietnam fighting U.S. imperialism uh, to the gay liberation struggle um, in the United States in which uh, Newton described and said that uh, gays, quote, might be the most revolutionary um, in the U.S., um, and saying that their fight, uh, um, and also in addition to solidarity with the, uh, the LGBT or the, the gay movement at that time, um, was really uh, um, the ability of the, the Panthers uh, to really... Uh, 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 described their fight as one against um, capitalism um, and not as sort of uh, anti-white a rejection of white radicals. Um, And even though the Black Panthers did not organize whites, they viewed whites as allies in the struggle against racism um, and capitalism. And the the, the Black Panthers really paid a price uh, for their politics, for the politics of solidarity, uh, for their politics of looking uh, to white allies, and obviously for uh, their revolutionary agenda of uh, fighting capitalism in the U.S. The FBI and U.S. government waged an unrelenting war of murder, espionage, torture, false imprisonment um, in an effort to destroy the Panthers and their legacy. Um, but politically, the Panthers were also vulnerable. They believed that those with the most to lose on their capitalism were the ones central to the fight against capitalism, uh, what they described as the lumpen proletariat. Um, in some ways, that was an understandable viewpoint, uh, based, especially when when you have, you know, mass... uh, ghetto rebellions happening that, as I said at the beginning, involved half a million African Americans. Um, And moreover, they looked at the third world rebellions where forces other than the working class uh, were leading those uh, revolts and drew the conclusion um, that the U.S. working class was racist, uh, was white workers, and really would offer no uh, uh, support or solidarity uh, to what they saw as a separate black struggle. and the problem with that, the orientation on the sort of lumpen poorest of the poor, those who they declared had nothing to lose in the society, uh, really led to their uh, organization being extremely loose, being overwhelmed with people who were attracted to the guns and the, the sort of image of the Panthers, and not necessarily the political commitment uh, that it takes to actually build a revolutionary organization um, and to you know, overthrow uh, the system of capitalism. Uh, The Dodge Revolutionary Union movement uh, was a different type of organization that was based in Detroit in the auto industry, which formed out of a Marxist study group between socialist students and black auto workers in the the late 1960s. The movement itself was born out of a uh, uh, wildcat strike um, in uh, Detroit in uh, May of 1968. Um, And uh, being in Detroit... Uh, the drum perspective was that black workers should be the focal point of the struggle um, and the focal point of their organizing. Um, black workers were uniquely placed in Detroit at the center of uh, auto production, um, and revolutionary union movements spread throughout the Detroit auto industry and even other industries in Detroit, in hospitals, uh, UPS, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but despite that, <laughs> they refused to organize white workers um, uh, and sort of said that that was the job of white radicals. And in some sense you know, that strategy could make some sense um, in Detroit where there was a concentration of black workers, but was really not a strategy that could be exported uh, uh, widespread um, beyond that. And so a series of arguments develop within uh, 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 DRUM, which becomes part of an umbrella group, the League for revolutionary uh, black workers and a series of debates and arguments ensue about whether or not to organize Organize, uh, uh, white workers, what the relationship should be between uh, uh, students and workers, uh, whether or not uh, black workers should organize autonomously, uh, so on and so forth, um, and eventually pulls the organization um, apart. And the ironic thing about these debates about you know the relationship between white workers on the one hand, should we ally ourselves uh, with whites in general, is that it's happening as a major strike wave and. Involving both black and white workers in the post, the the, the largest uh, strike wave involving both black and white workers in the post-World War II era um, is unfolding from 1967 through 1971, which is eventually punctuated um, at the high point by an illegal strike of 250,000 uh, U.S. postal workers in 1971. Um, so the question of organizing white workers was not abstract. Um, many of uh, uh, the same white workers were facing the same pressures uh, that were being placed on the black working class. Speed-ups, automation, uh, declining uh, wage value because of inflation, um, the... the um, the impact of the Vietnam War, uh, uh, so on and so forth, and, and needed to be a part of a, a, a necessary discussion about which way forward for all of these struggles. But these and other unresolved political issues limited the extent to which uh, uh, black power would go forward. At the same time, the system itself recognized that uniformly holding blacks at bay would continue to produce rebellion um, and revolt. Um, the reformers recognized the need to create a space for black frustration to be channeled. So there was an enormous because there was an enormous radicalization uh, taking place. The Democratic Party began to open uh, its doors. All sorts of uh, social reforms are put in place. Um, everything, you know, is part to give African Americans a stake in the system and also to integrate blacks more into the system. Uh, blacks were encouraged to look to electoral politics and the Democratic Party, as particular. As a vehicle for political change, um, Carl Stokes becomes the first black mayor elected in 1966, um, and by the 1990s, uh, there would be more than 9,000 black elected officials um, in the United States, 99% of them running and operating um, as Democrats, uh, uh, um, as members of the Democratic Party. And while today it's easy to look cynically upon this development, in the 1960s, when there were fewer than 300 black elected officials and big cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, etc., were openly controlled by bigoted political machines, blacks running for uh, uh, office in cities where they were often the majority, or in neighborhoods and communities where they were often majorities controlled by uh, corrupt white politicians, running for office seemed like a logical extension of the struggle. It seemed like it was part of the struggle um, itself. It seemed progressive, uh, um, but only if more um, radical means for uh, change were taken uh, off, uh, uh, off the table. Um, revolutionary moments... Um, You know, and uh, there there were parts of the 60s, particularly 1968, 1969, um, which seemed to present itself internationally, um, if not domestically, as a revolutionary moment, uh, don't last forever. And they don't even last for that long a time. Um, Fueled with hope and confidence, people are willing to fight if it looks like they'll win in those uh, pockets and windows of opportunity. But when the tide begins to turn in the other direction, the momentum is lost. Um, And and, and those windows can close uh, extremely rapidly. By 1974 the American economy had begun to go into decline. Uh, 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 The results of Vietnam um, and other pressures internationally. And this economic downturn brought with it a new reality of ending social spending on, on programs and turning to a vicious campaigning of scapegoating uh, uh, of African Americans, of unions, of all the social progressive forces that had fought to open things up in the 1960s to really uh, scapegoat and turn the tide on those. And so by the end of the 1960s, there was a full-scale attack on affirmative action and the other gains of the 19, uh, uh by the end of the 1970s, there was a full-scale attack on affirmative action and other gains of the 1960s movement. Moreover, activists who had been radicals and revolutionaries, uh, because of the failure of the revolutionary movement to break through, began to rethink their strategy as the movement, as the U.S. went to the right um, and, and to try to develop. Uh, 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 many concluded that they needed to be more pragmatic in their politics and either look to... Uh, academia or electoralism or to just drop out of, uh, of, of politics um, altogether. Uh, it, despite what eventually happened um, not just to the black power movement um, but to the, the radicalism of the 60s in general does not diminish uh, the incredible and important contribution uh, that that turned to ra- that radicalization in the black struggle in the late 1960s uh, in the late 1960s did. In terms of expanding the welfare state, in terms of the, the black struggle itself, the, the engagement in, in urban rebellion itself, because of the expansion of the bureaucracy and the creation of food stamps and welfare programs, in and of itself created 12,000 uh, uh, jobs um, in, in, that were primarily filled uh, with African Americans. Uh, uh, led to those programs directly led to a decrease of poverty in the United States. Poverty went. From uh, in something like 1960, 24% of the population to 12% um, by 1970, directly as the a result of the creation of these sorts of, of programs in which black struggle uh, was at the heart of. Um, but it also raises the issue of. Um, how does that movement? How is that movement taken further? Um, how do we get beyond just social reforms that mitigate the worst aspects of racism and poverty that are created by the system, and actually break through um, and, and capitalize on the revolutionary uh, moments that are uh, uh, presented? That's it.